Welcome to Words of Truth. This is Doug Presley. We are continuing where we left off. It is 10-24-2021. We're going to continue with the thought of the week and prayer. Okay. At this time, we'll have the thought of the week. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. The very next words are the reason we must pay close attention to God. He has a special purpose here. His purpose is the reason for his actions. God did not abolish the law because it didn't, because he didn't particularly like it. There was a purpose we must come to learn. What if his purpose for the church is different from Israel's purpose. Can you accept that? We must allow God to express his purpose for the church, which does not include the law. If you see his purpose and you pay attention to it, you are showing respect to God. We are giving him the respect as an individual who has the full right to express himself. The greatest respect we can give is to regard God to listen to him, and to hear him out. It takes trusting God to allow him to express his purpose. When we evaluate the plan of God, we can see there were different purposes for different times. Just as when building a house, we have different purposes in our actions. While the beginning phases may be focused on securing land, drafting plans, and getting permits, the latter phase will be different. One thing for sure, the overall plan is not to simply purchase the land. In this age, God has done something marvelous. He revealed his whole purpose to us, his eternal purpose. From where we sit, we can evaluate all the component parts of God's plan. We can understand each part and see how it contributes to his overall purpose. We have been blessed to know his eternal purpose. It really takes trust in God to realize this blessing. Imagine when God only revealed part of his plan, it certainly took trust in God then as well since they didn't have the full picture. It comes down to simply trusting God and allowing him to express himself. At this time, we'll have Dave in prayer. Okay. Anyone have any special prayer requests they have with their hearts? Okay, we'll take this through the throne of grace. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you give us the opportunity to be here today, Lord, to look at your word, Father, and open up what is in the word, Father. We pray, for our, Father, for those who are in need of prayer, those who are special requests, Father. Father, we pray for our church, Father, as we continue to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for those who are suffering, Father, for those who are having financial difficulties or health issues, Lord. 
Father, we ask the Lord those who are on this call and those who will be hearing us later on, Father, that you may bless them in your time and your need, Father. Father, as we continue to grow, Father, we ask that you, Lord, look over us and protect us while we're in this world. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, uh, both uh, Dave and Bill. Appreciate that. We are going to continue with uh, where we are in John 16. Actually, we are at the review. You should all have notes, so we are going to move forward. We have quite a few notes. Um, Whether we get through them or not is not important. Let's just dig in. Okay, so in your notes, as we move through this chapter, we have come to an end of the chapter and the end of the discourse. It is a good reminder to review the things Jesus covered and how they relate to our walk with the Spirit of Truth today. We should continue to see the critical nature of these verses and how the disciples survived under tremendous pressure. It is a story of great highs and lows for this small band of Jews. Of course, it it was ultimately a successful story since I am here today in Christ reviewing the record. The church was born and God's eternal purpose marches on. So we have, as I said, reached the end of the discourse. The next words that uh, Jesus speaks will be praying to the Father. And we have all of John 17 to sit back and try to digest his prayer to the Father, as we did chapter 16. So, but the, the discourse effectively is over. After the prayer, he says, okay, let's get up, let's go. And they go right on out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, they meet Judas there, and you know the rest of the story. So, John 16 was the last chapter of the discourse, and it contained quite a few important points. Uh, I can't redo what took us seven months to do, uh, and one or two uh, lessons uh, or times that we we have on Sunday. We just don't have... (laughs) I mean, the only way to really get into what we talked about is to to dig in to the notes of what we have done. I have emailed the notes to you so you have them for reference. But you have uh, the whole seven months of information there. And we're, we're going to go over um, just some quick reviews. So like I said, we can't do six, seven months and condense it into, we, we certainly will not catch all that we have talked about and all the points we have made. And, and I'm not even saying that the points that are here are the most important ones. They're the ones that have come to mind. So in any case, let's dig in and we will uh, see what we miss later. Uh, first point, the disciples, this is John 16 uh, and verses 1 through 6. And the title, Preparing the Disciples for that, uh, for should be for what is to come. <laughs> there was error already in the notes there. 
this could happen. Uh, okay, so preparing the disciples for what is to come. Oh, by the way, in Rome, well, we'll deal with that in Romans when we get there. But there was a scripture we couldn't find in Romans. And um, it was Romans 3.21, I remember. In any case, we're getting into this. So point A in our notes, the disciples had to gain a new outlook for their lives. They had much to go through and none of it was in their theology. So this was an important point to make. In their minds, they had the scenario of how this should end or how it should they should fare under the Messiah. They figured, this is what we know. But Jesus was going to introduce things to them that were not in their theology. So it was a true test. It wasn't a test of persecution and whether or not they would recant or something. It was a test to see if they were were willing to follow God. And, and even if it contradicted their way of thinking, their theology. So it... it I remember, you know, I posed this question to us. You know, how well adaptive are we when it comes to change? When things don't necessarily f flow with our theological point of view, how do we, do we get angry? Do we um, protest? Do we deny? <laughs> how do we do it? What do we do? Well, we could see what the disciples did. It was laid out for us, and they did not handle it well. I suspect we also don't handle it well. We just always have to remember that change is difficult. And for them, what bolstered the fact that they were okay to accept this change is the presence of God through Jesus doing signs, wonders, and miracles. And if that wasn't there, and it was just competing opinions, then I, I, I don't know that the disciples would have been persuaded. But the fact that they had witnessed God working through Christ, miracle after miracle, sign after sign, wonder after wonder, that there was no denying that Jesus was from God. So they eventually had to trust his words. Uh, at first, they didn't. And there were times when you could see throughout the Gospels where they didn't. They clearly failed. But what overwhelmingly, I think, won them over was the fact that we just talked about there were undeniable signs, wonders, and miracles. The supernatural had entered into their realm. So, it, just think about it. It wasn't in their theology. There was a new dispensation. Uh, they, we, it wasn't predicted. It was hidden. So how could they? So we, we really should have understanding for them as well. So that's the first part where he says, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. 
I did not tell you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. So point B, the disciples could have deserted everything they had seen and heard when they witnessed Jesus's death. They could totally have flaked out and fallen apart and said, that's it. Jesus died. I don't care what he said. I don't care what he did. He's dead now. But they did not. They were there in the upper room. They were, even though they were afraid and the doors were locked, they were together. So they could have quickly departed. The movement could have been over, but that wasn't the end of the story. Point C, moreover, there were more things ahead that could cause division. In fact, even though what happened with the death of Christ was bad enough, you know, just hearing about the death of Christ was bad enough. Uh, but there was more on top of that. As it says, they will persecute you. They will think they're offering a service to God and they will kill you. In the name of God, they will kill you. Uh, all of this is coming, Jesus is saying, upon these lowly Jews. And you, you could easily say, wow, they dealt with it bravely after Pentecost. They really did. We, we, we have to say that. Uh, so there were more things ahead, and it was religious persecution, which is the worst. Point D, this division became an issue for the church in the coming years. So the fact that the Jews who refused to, uh, to follow God through the new dispensation uh, became a problem for those who did follow God into the new dispensation. And there was persecution. And they were doing God's service. Well, that's the Jews who thought that uh, to break the Mosaic law, to, uh, to be a Jew, and, and to say that we're not under the law was heresy. And it was pun punishable by death. They were willing to kill people because of, you know, their, well, all we have to do is look at the Apostle Paul and how they thought about him. So this became a sore spot in the early church. I don't know why this is not really uh, played up uh, in, in other theologies because it is ignored. But it was a major issue that God changed the dispensation and some people refused to accept it. So we're going to go over five points on that. One, God demonstrated this change through signs, wonders, and miracles. Well, Hebrews 2.4, that literally says that. He testified to it through signs, wonders, and various miracles given by the Holy Spirit. Well, he's literally saying there's justification for God making the change. He didn't just out of the blue say, here it is, accept it. And that's important point too. Those who refuse to integrate this new theology would fall short of God's will for their lives. And here we have people who out and out just said, no way, not accepting it. If we go to John 3, 1 through 3, we know Nicodemus 
is those, I say, classic words. We know that you are from God because no one can do the things you are doing except God is with him. So we, we can know that for sure. And John 3, 1 through 3. But then in 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14, I want to turn to that one. Thirteen and fourteen says, "This is what we speak." What is that noise? Stand by. Resuming. So in First Corinthians two, thirteen and fourteen, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but words taught us by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. So that those are people who understand the new dispensation and allowing the spirit to teach them but then verse 14 the person without the spirit in other words they refuse to adhere to what the spirit is uh, does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit so this is information where you can see both uh, persons here accepting the new age one on the one hand is, and not only that Paul saying not only that this is what we we teach we speak this and then you see the other hand where the person rejects the ministry of the spirit trying to lead them into all truth the deeper things of God they reject that so that's quite interesting played out in two verses point number three why could they not see it what was the reason why people couldn't see this information? Like, could they have looked in Daniel or, you know, some Ezekiel or, you know, some book, Isaiah, to, to kind of find out and get a heads up that this was coming or they should expect this? And the answer was no. There was no uh, prerequisite for what we see in the mystery. It was not found was not disclosed in the Old Testament. And that's Ephesians 3.9, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. So there's no question about why we can't understand it, uh, the mystery. Uh, but it is something that people will have to evaluate and trust by faith. There will be ample evidence to know that God has uh, gone this direction and as we already said through signs wonders and miracles so so point number four in their blindness they fought to keep the mosaic law in place and this was hold on in their blindness they fought to keep the mosaic law in place and persecuted the church for its departure so in this, we can clearly see what happened to the disciples who uh, eventually there, there was the Jerusalem council. And in this council, uh, many who came together to try to hash out which direction the church should go, whether they should go under the Mosaic law, uh, because there were certainly people and factions that were uh, vying for the church to head that direction 
or whether they should follow this new direction under grace. And obviously we can tell you which one won out, but not to the full extent. So we should understand that there was this uh, skirmish, fight going on within the church. And then in Romans eleven twenty eight talks about those who are clearly on the wrong side, calling them enemies. Obviously they were not saved. They were persecuting the church. Then we're talking about Israel. And that would be the Jews. They're persecuting the church. And uh, uh, so hang on a sec. After this point, stand by. We're resuming again. So as we discussed, the early church was not uh, uh, on board, all of them, with the new dispensation. And I would say in point number five, the church today would do well to learn this history so as not to repeat it and miss God's purposes. And it's important, I would say, for the church, if they don't talk about this at all, it's not even an issue for people today, then you have to wonder what is, you know, did they not understand what was at issue in the early church? Because it is certainly played out in the pages of scripture. So why is it not spoken of today? Why are a lot of churches today trying to blend and blur the lines of Israel and the church? Uh, some are, are even saying that the church replaces Israel uh, without an understanding of what is really going on here. So point E, much of what Jesus was saying did not make sense to the disciples later the words of Jesus would resonate loudly with them. Quote, I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. We're going to have to pause. Resuming. So we are just about finished with this first section. Let's go to point number two. This is John 16, 7 through 11. Uh, the New Age and the Spirit, right? the advocates coming at Pentecost. So we're going to go through this next section. Uh, this, why don't we read the next section so we can at least um, get an idea of what is said here. So this is John 16, 7 through 11 says, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away, Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. About judgment, because the Prince of this world now stands condemned. So we went over these verses, and again, uh, our thought was to glean from them some thoughts about what we had covered. Uh, so the first one is, it is for your good that I am going away, as we read. Uh, the pivotal transition, the disciples were too emotional to understand. And even, remember, when just hearing the thought of Jesus leaving them left them 
teary-eyed and emotional. I mean, they had been with Jesus. I mean, they didn't know whether to stand up and pledge their obedience and loyalty or whether to run. It really was uh, a really tough time for them. And it was a transition that they had to go through. I mean, literally, they were on the ground at the time while they had to go through this transition from Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and then into the new dispensation at Pentecost. So, but for Christ going away, Christ is saying, it was, it's good for you that I'm going away. You're not seeing the good now, but later you will. Right now, they were too emotional, too upset. Uh, even from John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. You believe in God. Believe also in me. So the disciples were distraught at the news. And so even though Jesus went through the discourse, it, all the way down in 16, it still says, he says uh, in verse 6, rather you are filled with grief because I have said these things. So even they're still upset and they're not grasping fully because of emotions are flooding their soul. So point B, when he comes, and that's the momentous coming of God, the Holy Spirit. That is the beginning of this new dispensational change called the Advocate, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth. Right? His ministry is global in scope and he will prove like it says prove the world to be in the wrong about sin so when we talk about uh, these verses a lot of times we don't focus on verses 8 through 11 we focus on verses 12 through 15 reason is because those verses directly talk about our dispensation and what what you know, we ought to, you know, be aware of. But this whole ministry of 8 to 11, where it talks about of sin, of righteousness, and judgment, and then he goes into each one of them and explains what he means. But this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is new work that the Spirit would undertake starting at Pentecost. And it says, when he comes, this is what he's going to do. He's going to reprove the word. And he goes through all these different things. So we should know that it's, his ministry is global in scope. It's to the world that all of these things are going on. That he will prove the world to be in the wrong. That's John 16, 8. So point C, the Spirit's reproof, rebuke, and convicting of the world is around their understanding of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, not only that, I would say that there is new information for them to, uh, for, for God to convey to the world. New information now that Jesus has come and has done. And there are some points around that, right? The Spirit's work of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And let's go through them. Looks like there are eight of them. First one, if the Spirit is addressing the world, it must be the world of unbelievers. For this message is evidently about salvation. And we should know that. If he's going to address the world in general, not the church in the world, but the world, then it's got to be about salvation. 
What else can he tell the world? Oh, well, he can tell the world a lot, but I'm saying the most important things are going to be what the Holy Spirit is focused on. So that's the first thought. It's He's addressing the world. It has to be about salvation. And two, the bad news. When he talks about sin, uh, the, the world rejects the bad news, generally speaking. They don't. And, and they can't understand, therefore, the good news. So the good news is only good because of what we have been understood, what we have understood to be the bad news. If you believe the bad news, that's a hopeless situation. You're, you're like Paul said, what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's bad news. So only through our Lord Jesus Christ, only the gospel can not only reverse what was bad, but add uh, these grace blessings that we have in Christ. <clears throat> so the, the good news brings a whole new outlook, not, a, not only for what we have now, but for the eternal destiny of all of us. <clears throat> Stand by. So that's point number two. Point number three, the world rejects God's solutions to the sin problem and is constantly looking for solutions from a human perspective. But really, God has solved it all. God has all the answers with the sin problem and and, and we, we could just trust that God has this. People are busy trying to atone for their sins. <clears throat> there is this notion that, yeah, you've done some wrong things. So how do you, what do you do? Well, you got to do some right things. If you do enough right things, then they will overcome or outweigh the wrong things you've done. This is a common notion. Listen, I don't care if you're grace-oriented. It's in you. This notion that if you do good, it will overcome the bad. Really, with God, that notion is all wrong. Because God is saying, if you offend in one point, you're guilty of all. And we offended in one point with Adam. When Adam sinned, that's the one point we offended. And we're guilty of all. We are born offensive to God. Let's just say it. We're born enemies of God because of what Adam did. There is no getting around it. There are no two ways about it. God's not going to grade us on a curve. The only thing he can do <clears throat> is condemn us, which he has done soundly, the whole human race of Adam. Well, the world rejects that. They say, no, 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 that can't be. I mean, um, there must be something I can do. I, I, I can do better, but that's wrong. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, it says that God's solution, in a nutshell, here it is, 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God made him, that's him is Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, stand by.
So, thought I heard some background noise there. So that's the thought. Um, we might become the righteousness. God has it all covered. Christ is sin for us. We are we are made the righteousness of God. I mean, those are the two important ingredients when it comes to salvation. It's not just God solved the sin problem, right? And then this is point number four. Christ is the propitiation of God. Believing in him, that is, this Jesus, not just any Jesus, any Messiah, but this is the one, is the only way of salvation, right? Now, this is what we have to know when it comes to sin. And it literally, in the verse, it says, of sin, because they do not believe in me. Now, who is Christ? Christ is the propitiation of God. God's not saying, just believe in Christ and don't worry about your sins. Your sins are covered because Christ was judged for every sin you would ever commit. So it's logical for God to say, okay, well, Christ is the propitiation. He satisfies me for all your sins. So the only condition that God puts before you is believing in him. Most people will refuse to do that. They will look to... uh, you know, as we said in point three, find their own solutions that make them feel better about uh, whatever wrong they have done. But it's, propitiation is not about you feeling better. It's about God the Father feeling better or satisfied with the work of Christ on our behalf. So it's the only way of salvation is through Christ. And John five twenty four talks about it. That says, Believing in him who sent me has eternal life, has crossed over from death to life, and will not come into judgment, and has eternal All those are results of salvation. First John 2, 2 talks about he is a propitiation not for only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So the Holy Spirit is not only just saying, well, believe in Christ. Believe, he, he's saying, it's this Christ. It's the one who died under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died on the cross, and was buried in the tomb. And then, after three days, was raised to life and appeared to many. Uh, This is the Jesus we're talking about. So that's new information that the Old Testament didn't have. Uh, The Old Testament looked forward to the Messiah to come. Well, Jesus is that Messiah. He did come, as John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Point number five. Righteousness. What about righteousness? Christ is our righteousness. Our only ground for standing with God is Christ, is, is, should be, is the work of Christ. Right? That's it. Right? That's, that's the only ground whereby you can uh, stand before a holy God, and that is through the work of Christ. Actually, I think I read 5.21, but I really should have read uh, 5.19, which says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And here it is, not counting people's sins against them. Who's, who, what's the scope of this? The world, right? And how does he do it? By not counting their sins. Well, who, who, who got their sins? 21, uh, verse 21. God made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So Christ uh, received the imputation of all of our sins. 
And that's how God is satisfied with the work of Christ. There's no other way. Each sin that was committed by every person in the world was imputed to Christ and judged. That's how God, in justice, righteously judged all sins. So therefore, he is able now, once you believe in Christ, to give you righteousness, impute his Christ's own righteousness. That's important to note. So point six, do not miss the point that salvation is not only about sin, but also about righteousness. And Romans 1.17 says it where Paul actually exploits this. So hopefully you see this. 1.17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So Paul is saying, let me tell you something about the gospel. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So what? how can we understand that? We, we understand that because of the fact that uh, we, we see that God has a righteous standard. And because of God's righteous standard, guess what we have? The bad news. And God is saying, I have to push away from the human race because they do not fulfill my righteous standards. I have to separate myself from them. And that separation is what caused the bad news. God is saying that not only are they, uh, did they sin and death through sin, but they have a sin nature and God's justice because of his righteousness rejecting us has condemned us. That's the bad news. So I'm saying, Paul is saying, actually, you should also see the gospel from the standpoint of God's righteousness because it reveals a standard that was violated that uh, Jesus Christ rectifies through uh, what he has brought to the table. So and when you read in uh, Romans chapter 5, it talks about the two Adams, the first and the last. First Adam, sin entered the world. The last Adam, righteousness, life, and peace, peace is reconciliation with God, is in him. So the righteousness of God is revealed. And then there's 3, 19 through 24, has nothing to do with the law, as you know. So then, uh, point seven is judgment. The world needs to know the consequence of resisting and rejecting the Holy Spirit here. And so you know John three eighteen and 36, but uh, I will also recommend to you 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10. So I'm going to turn there. One we don't often read. And just to note, they need to know, right? So when you look at the gospel, it talks about they shall not perish. Well, they are perishing. They're in the state of perishing when they hear the gospel. They have a choice to make. They are condemned. They have a choice to make. Right? The, wrath, the life of God, they will not see life. The wrath of God will remain on them. They have a choice. And uh, there are consequences to the choices that you make with respect to the gospel. So... Just know, but in Second Thessalonians 
1, 8 through 10, it says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. So notice, I mean, there's more you could read around that, but you are seeing that there are stark consequences for those who refuse God's gracious offer. It is important that they see this as uh, a consequence to their decision. And then point eight, ultimately, it talks about Satan and the fallen angels and all human beings who reject God's gracious offer will remain in the lake of fire eternally. This is Matthew 25, 41, which talks about the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. Obviously, it is also uh, for human beings as they go there as well, those who reject God's gracious offer. And then last point in this section is since you know what the Spirit is doing on the inside. So all of these things, the Spirit is witnessing to the hearts of the world, of every person in the world. The Holy Spirit's job is to tell the world these three things. And these three things are about the gospel. So now the question becomes, what are you doing, right? Does your message, when you talk to people, agree with his work on the outside? So we, can, we can't talk to the inside of the hearts of people. We can speak the words, but the Holy Spirit has to apply those words to the hearts where that person is, stands in the balance of reasoning these things for themselves. And he can weigh on that person's conscience he can witness the reality of God uh, to that person, whereas the person still has uh, an objective way to say no to God, the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit's influence. For sure, the person can say no. So, uh, But we know what God's doing on the inside. We know what the issues are. We know what the Holy Spirit is persuading the world uh, to be or to do. So now when you witness, you can make sure you are working in concert with God, the Holy Spirit, not in opposition. Are you making an issue of sin? And the Holy Spirit is making an issue of one sin. And what, is, what sin is that? The fact that people don't believe in Jesus Christ, who took away all of our sins, who solved the sin problem. I'm just taking one of the thoughts. So we need to make sure we emphasize those things. And those are the things that unbelievers need to deal with. It doesn't matter if you convince an unbeliever that there is a rapture. They say, okay, I, I agree with you. You have certainly proved that there's a rapture. But the Holy Spirit is not focused on that. He's, you see what he is focused on here. And those are the things we ought to agree and, and witness as well. So... Continuing, we'll, we'll cover another point, point three. I think we have, we're going to cut, cut it right after point three. So point three is John 16, 12 through 15. 
the continued discourse, but through the spirit of truth. So point A, Jesus continues to speak. Now this is uh, 16, 12 through 15. I'll just read it before we go into it so we can make sure we are all on the same page about what we're talking about. <clears throat> 12 through 15 says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, <clears throat> he will guide you into all truth, all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why uh, I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So there are some points about this. The first one is Jesus continues to speak through the Spirit just as much as, and he has much more to say. The question I ask is, are you listening? So if Jesus spoke to the disciples, told them he had a whole lot more to tell them, more than they can now bear, well, he is telling them through the Spirit, through the ministry of the Spirit of Truth. He is letting us know what that much more information is all about. And that's where our focus is in this age, is to develop, understand, live the reality of that much more information. Jesus continues to talk to us. Uh, the disciples are gone off the scene and, and with Jesus now, but we are on the ground, and he speaks as we are uh, unfolding the reality of these passages. He is telling us what the, the importance of them are. So point B, the spirit of truth. And uh, through so much in this area, I cannot even think to what is most important. I would just refer you to go back to the notes on these passages. We spent almost five weeks of uh, lessons and times to talk about all of this. And we, we took our time. That's why it took us five weeks to cover these verses. But uh, so... What do we mean by truth? What is truth? It was truth versus tradition, truth versus entertainment, truth versus religious, uh, you know, dispensational truth. I mean, there was a lot of different things. Relativism we talked about. Uh, I think we have dealt with that in sufficient detail. We can't cover all of that now. But just to say, like, what is truth? You know who said that? Pilate. But he said it in a way that is to say, well, who can know what truth is? You Jews think you have it? What is truth? So John 17, 17 answers the question. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And we dealt with the word of God and the emphasis on God completing the work or all the truth by this information that we have, this new information that has been hidden and now has been revealed. So it's linked to the mystery, as we said earlier. So the spirit, obviously, is called the spirit of truth. So he's come. When he comes, he will guide us in all truth. 
So isn't that interesting that he is called the spirit of truth? And then what is truth? Sanctify them, set them apart by means of the truth. Your word is truth. So all of these things were committed to writing as well. And now we have the word of God. So point C, all the truth is the revelation of the mystery. And I hopefully people will understand that this is what augments Jesus's words when he says, I got much more to tell you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will go. I hope you have linked these verses to this important information. Uh, if you haven't, you can read um, Ephesians 3. Surely you have heard about um, the dispensation uh, given me for you, which was hidden. That is the mystery, which was hidden in age. Right? That's Ephesians 3, 2 through 4. Just take some time to read it. And then 1 Corinthians uh, 2, 9, and 10. If you haven't made the, the link to this important thing here, First uh, Corinthians 2, 9, and 10. However, as it is written... What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived. The things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. There it is. I mean, how I don't know how much more of this information can we truly you know, if we look at this, it is literally the words of what Jesus has said. And now we learn that it's beyond things that we have heard, conceived. Why is it things we haven't seen or heard or conceived? Because it was hid in God. That's why. But how are we to know these things? Only by, like as Jesus would say, when he comes. And literally, verse 10, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. Spirit searches all things and calls these, these things the deep things of God. So if you miss everything and you miss this point, you truly have missed everything. Because this is the point to make so that you now have a focus in this age. You can now turn your attention to the things that God, the Holy Spirit, has revealed. It's not about the things that he has uh, committed to writing to Israel. or, or This is information that has not been seen before, but now it's upon us. This is the information that is about us. There's a lot more we could have said. Uh, I, I can't, like I said, def reduce all of this to a few points here. Point D, critical defining words about the new dispensation to come at Pentecost, right? This is literally, when you read this, this passage, John 6, 12 through 15, I mean, this, these words, not only are they critical, but they're defining. Right? They talk about what's important in our age and how, the how of it all. And the what, yeah, there's much more what to be coming. But the how of it defines the new dispensation. And I can say many have focused on uh, the new dispensation as just being more emotional. Right? This, instead of the spirit of truth, it's the spirit of emotion. You know, I mean, it's, it, 
it, it just takes us a step back to think about, okay, now, God, something new, what do you say about it? Let's not try to define it by what we think about it. Let's just let God set the stage for us. So you have to, these are very critical, pivotal points to make when we think about what's going to happen in this new dispensation. Well, people kind of blur the lines. As I said, they don't even focus on uh, the fact that there's a new dispensation, something new that we should distinguish. It's all one big Israel church together. Point E, does the Christian world, and here's where I'm asking the question, link what Jesus said to what happened at Pentecost and what is currently happening? And I would say the answer is no. Even though if you read those scriptures and uh, where Jesus was telling them about the coming of the Spirit, nothing about emotion, all about this truth, this new way, this new understanding and dynamic spiritual relationship that is coming to the church that will be normative, just like it was normative for Jesus to have the Father. He's like the Father. Everything is about the Father. The words that I speak are not my words. They're the Father's words. right? All of that was normative for Jesus. He's saying that would also be normal for the Christian church. All of this is coming, Jesus is saying. On that day, you will realize I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. All of that never happened. That's new information. Eye has not seen it, ear has not heard it, neither has any heart conceived it. So, does the Christian world link what Jesus said to what happened in Pentecost and what is currently happening today? Do they understand that? I, I don't know. I hope the Christian world does. And for those who don't, we can do our best to help them understand this most important point. And the best way for us to do it is to make sure we understand it. And it was how critical the early church had to deal with this question. Point F, our way of life and distinctive purpose is defined by Jesus through the spirit of truth. So, our way of life in the church age, in this age we call the church age, is, is not the Holy Spirit telling us what to do. It's literally Jesus telling what we should do. He's the one still in control. He's Lord. But he is operating through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Everything we receive comes from the Spirit of truth. Spirit of Truth illuminates what Jesus said and what Jesus is saying. He is still telling us that much more information. So uh, it's, our, let me just read that again. Our way of life and distinctive purpose is defined by Jesus through Spirit of Truth. It is not the Spirit of Truth's design. It comes from Jesus. Point G. Jesus, the Spirit of Truth, uh, as I think about those two entities, Jesus, the Spirit of Truth, who is really speaking to us? While I've already answered the question, it is Jesus speaking to us through the Spirit of Truth. Point H, Jesus the Father. Okay, so when we think about Jesus and the Father, 
The question would be, who is really speaking to us? And I will have to say, <laughs> this is a tricky one, because a person would say, oh, well, it's really the Father speaking to us. Really, it's Jesus speaking to us. Why, why would I say that? Because Jesus makes the point, I know that I said it's tricky. Right? Jesus makes the point in John 16. He says, um, all, verse 15, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me and will make known and will make known to you. So, yeah, he got it from the Father, but Jesus is saying, is now mine. So I would say, even though it comes from the Father, it belongs. Jesus is still the one speaking to us. I didn't answer those questions. I hope you do. Um, Jesus, the Father, who is really speaking to us? Jesus by way of the Father. We got to at least put the Father in there some kind of way, just like in verse 15. Point I. This pivotal, destiny-altering, defining information is revealed to us. Right? It's not just the disciples who are getting this information. John 17, 20 says, uh, I am writing not for those alone, but for also for those who will believe on me through their message, right? So what is their message? It's this new dynamic age. It's for us too. That's why verse 20 is there. Because in the first verses, he's talking to the disciples, and he's talking about the disciples to the Father. But then in verse 20, he says, yeah, I, I'm not just telling this for the disciples' benefit alone, I'm also telling this for those who will believe in that age through their message. Yeah, and that uh, this is important that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they be one in us. And, you know, it goes on. So we are this one church. We're just this one. And the oneness is not just we're one together, you know, members of one body, I'm talking about the oneness we have with the members of the Trinity. We're one with the Father and the Son through the ministry of the Spirit. So it is distinct. It is pivotal it, 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 to our thinking. It is destiny-altering. It changes who we are. We're not of this world. You know, we're, we're heavenly beings. And, you know, the role that we have in eternity it goes on. Point J, five ministries of the Spirit. Now, we won't have time to go over all the details, but we did go over this detail. There's the baptism of the Spirit. And these, are, these details distinguish us, make us unique. This is what happened when Pentecost uh, dawned upon uh, us that day. The baptism of the Spirit, the Spirit indwells us, He fills us, He seals us, and He gifts us. And we need to review those things. Uh, hopefully there is good uh, memory for everyone when it comes to this, because these are the things that define us, uh, especially the baptism of the Spirit, as those who are in Christ and are new creations. And these are things that not only we should review, but these are things that are part of who we are 
Right? This is essentially studying what God has done uh, to us and for us. Point K, we're moving forward. And this is our last point today. As the apostle said, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. And this is, this is what Paul says. This is what we speak. This is what we're about. This is what we teach. If we talk to people, this is what we talk about. If we go out and, I mean, were it not for these words, uh, Paul is saying that this is the link between not only what we've heard, the deep things of God, the eyes have not seen, ears have not heard. He, not only, we turned a corner, and now this becomes our agenda. This is what we're about now. And listen, not in words taught us by human wisdom. Well, that is, uh, eye has seen, ear has heard, neither entered into the heart of man. Right? None of that enters into what we're talking about, what we're about. But in words taught us by the Spirit. There it is. I mean, literally, when the Spirit comes. Now, when the Spirit comes, those words are really Christ's words, as we already know explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. And it's interesting, if you go to verse 16, it talks about this from the standpoint of we have the mind of Christ. Yeah. So, we're going to conclude at this point. We will definitely not get through all six of these points, but we'll come back, revisit this review next week, and finish it, and perhaps might even get a chance to look at John... 17 an introduction so as we conclude this thought today let's bow our heads think about what the father has revealed to us in john 16 a lot i would say let's bow our heads thank you father for the calling that uh, is ours we thank you for all of the detail the directional way you have uh, shown us your will Thank you for this church and for those who have participated. Father, we know that you have given us a treasure. In fact, you have declared that it was all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. We thank you for those who are here. And we pray for the church at large, wherever they may be, that all of us may come to the fullness and stature of Christ. We thank you, Father, for uh, those in this church and uh, those who are on this call. All of this we ask for in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.